Have you ever wanted to play the perfect tabletop game where story beats run smoothly and there's no awkward pauses between dice rolls? Yeah, me too. But since that's impossible, I did the next best thing and novelized my Witcher tabletop game to showcase the story in its cleanest form. The result is this podcast. I'm Jacob Gerstel, and this is Tales from the Witcher. Part audiobook, part actual play, part serialized adventure, and a whole new way to vicariously enjoy tabletop games. Welcome to the world of The Witcher, where monsters roam freely and the continent is once again at war. If you were hoping to follow the plight of Geralt of Rivia, however, I'm not going to be doing that. Instead, I offer you the story of a not-so-merry band of degenerates who are making their way across the continent. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Mid-8. 15. Jeremiah hummed lightly when he found the perfect spot. It was an empty patch of land next to the forge, no doubt meant for a traveling merchant to set up shop. His humming drowned out the hammering as he pulled the heavy wooden box from his bag. He opened the box and extended its legs. It did not take long for the tinker's forge to heat up. Jeremiah nodded with satisfaction and started hammering away at his craftsman hammer, which was in desperate need of reinforcing due to overuse. He had nearly completed his work when Velder Stegen stomped out of the forge. Jeremiah thought he would have stopped by earlier, but wasn't apt to complain. You must be hard of hearing, the dwarven craftsman said. Or you don't know when to stop pushing your luck. Jeremiah gave him a mocking smile. Why, whatever do you mean? You're not gilded, Velder said. That means you can't work in a forge, and you sure as shit can't set up shop wherever you please. Where in hell did you even get a tinker's forge? That's not your concern. Just like it's not your concern where I conduct my business. It is very much my concern, Velder said through clenched teeth. Pack the forge up now, or I'll call the damned guards. There's no need for that, Master Dwarf. Jeremiah produced a rolled piece of parchment and handed it to Velder. I'm here on official church business, and I wouldn't recommend calling the guards on the Church of the Eternal Fire. Velder read the letter Mother Lana wrote and signed that morning granting him the ability to craft, as long as it was for the benefit of the Church of the Eternal Fire. Jeremiah was afraid the dwarf's teeth would crack if he clenched his jaw any tighter. He rolled the parchment up and handed it back. Didn't take you for a religious man. Looks can be deceiving. Now, is there anything else I can help you with? No, Felder said, and he stomped back to the forge. Jeremiah laughed. He couldn't help it. Vindication was a powerful feeling. He spent the day at the forge and gathered materials from the nearby shops. He had an idea on what to craft next, and thought to run it by Mother Lana. The sun was setting by the time he reached the cathedral. The doors were again open, guarded by acolytes, and a good portion of the town was again listening to Lana's sermon. Jeremiah politely waited for her to finish, and for the crowd to thin out. Mother Lana leaned against the cathedral entrance and looked down at the craftsmen. And how went the work today? Very well, Jeremiah said. The flames of the eternal fire were well fed. You don't actually have to feed wood to the eternal fire, Lana said. That's why it's called the eternal... Oh, never mind. Come in. She lounged on one of the wooden pews as Jeremiah told her about his work and how Velder Stegen didn't bother him any further. I wanted to thank you again, Jeremiah finally said. I don't know what I would have done without your help. Lana waved the gratitude away. No reason to thank me. I know you'll learn your keep with the church. 
The Knights of the Flaming Rose are always in need of weapons and armaments. You'll keep busy. Yes, speaking of... Jeremiah pulled out a diagram that he had picked up from Gramet of Lonkoff. I was thinking of working on this next. He handed the diagram to Mother Lana, who scrutinized it with squinting eyes. It's an interesting-looking design, she said after some time. That's because you're holding it upside down. Oh, so I am. Lana turned the diagram around. This is a crossbow, yes? It is. A sturdy design, too. I spent half the day scouring the market for materials. Simple enough to make, but it takes time. I'll have a prototype for you by tomorrow. Along with some bolts, of course. Lana rolled the diagram up and handed it back to Jeremiah. Will you be able to mass-produce them? Not quite. At least, not with my Tinker's Forge. Then I suggest you head to Mahakam when you can. The Dwarven Forges are infinitely more powerful than the ones we have here. Should make the work faster, no? It would. And we... I plan on heading to Mahakam after the solstice. Good to hear. Lana lolled her head back to look up at the cathedral's high ceilings. So, do you need to stay here again tonight? Jeremiah chuckled. I don't have any other lodgings, so if you'll have me... As long as you don't mind sleeping on the pews, you can stay here as long as you wish. Think of the church as a sanctuary. Lana stood up and stretched. Care to join me for a drink? There's still a little red wine from that sermon, and talking for so long always parches my throat. Jeremiah bowed and said, I'll gladly take what you're offering. Don't misunderstand my intentions, unless you fancy another split lip. Lana grinned and beckoned him to her quarters. Sometimes I just like to drink. Jeremiah bowed again and followed Mother Lana to her quarters for a drink and nothing more. Unlike what Felder said, he knew when to stop pushing his luck. 16. Ethramel sat on one of the empty benches in the courtyard near the center of town. He lingered there, pretending to watch the laborers build their large stage. His eyes wandered towards the western side of Kalmek, however, where the buildings were nicer and there wasn't a dwarf or elf in sight. There were plenty of guards, though. Doubt they let me pass, Ethramel thought. Not with a face like this. An idea struck Ethramel when he saw an elven laborer exit a nearby shop, resting a few planks of wood on his shoulder. The sorcerer stood up and offered to help the sweating elf, who gladly accepted. They lowered the planks onto a large stack near the stage. What's all this for, kin? he asked. The elf armed sweat from his forehead. For the feast, of course. The courtyard will be crawling with people come mid-eight. I see. Ethramel made a show of rubbing his chin. Do you happen to need an extra set of hands? I'm a little low on coin and willing to work hard. The elf stared at Ethramel's burn scars. After a moment, he nodded and offered to show him where he can sign up. An undersecretary sat beneath a shaded awning near the courtyard. He didn't give Ethramel a second glance, just asked him to sign his name in the ledger. Ethramel signed as Valdo. He volunteered to work on top of the stage, setting a few high beams. This gave him a better vantage point of the west side. The Lord's Manor was easy enough to find, as it was the most defended, with two guards standing watch at the metal gate. A whistle from below broke Ethramel's attention. Alou looked up at him, a wry smile on his face. Ethramel dropped a few nails and scrambled down the stage to retrieve them. What's this? Alou asked in elder speech. Not even a day and you're already working for the humans. It's called reconnaissance, Alou. Something you were supposed to be doing with the patrols. I've got the wall rotations. Two guards at the north and south gate, and two pairs of guards patrolling each wall in 15-minute intervals. Good. We'll need to get this information to Shenny. You want me to ride back? Ethramel considered. Not yet. Meet me at the cracked chalice in an hour. We'll discuss more then. Don't throw your back out, Alu said with a laugh, and walked off. 
Ethermel climbed back on the stage and resumed his work. He couldn't help but feel like he stood on a scaffold. He pushed the paranoia from his mind and tried to figure out the West Side's guard patrol. It took him longer than he would have liked, and the work distracted him, but there was plenty of sun left when he felt satisfied. He made sure no one was watching and simply left the courtyard. Valdo would lose out on his hard-earned wage, but Ethermel decided he could live with that. He had more pressing matters to address. Mid-eight was a day and a half away, and he feared for Shenny and the Scoriatel's chances. He feared for their chances greatly. A drink will steady my nerves, he thought as he entered the cracked chalice. A drink and a chat with Alu. With a clear mind, I'll be able to... Well, fuck me. Alu sat at a table with Carmignola and a bookish-looking man. The doctor was saying something to Alu, who answered quite calmly. In fact, he's right there, the elf said, pointing to Ethramel. The sorcerer sighed and joined them at the table. Good to see you again, Carmignola. Who's your friend? Rammert, the bookish man said. We were just talking to your friend. Yes. Carmignola's expression was that of a stern magistrate preparing to pass a harsh sentence. I realized I never got his name. Whose name? Carmignola jabbed a finger at Alu. Alu smiled crookedly at Ethramel. I'm not sure what Carmignola here is going on about. He keeps saying I live in the forest, and to be honest, I don't appreciate the subtext. Not all elves live in the forest, you know. And my name's Amel. No, but you happen to be one that does live in the forest. What is it you do, Master Amel? Rammert said. Fisherman, Alu and Ethramel said at the same time. He's from the south, the sorcerer added. Ah, good fishing this time of year? Not particularly, Alu said. It's not spawning season. Interesting that a fisherman doesn't have equipment on him, Carmignola said. His hands were balled into fists on his thighs. Alu shrugged. Borrowed to bring my equipment with me to have a drink. You plowing son of a- Thank you for your time, gentlemen. Rammert stood up and nodded at the three. I'm afraid I must return to Lord Haman. Carmignola stood up so fast, Ethermel was afraid his chair would clatter onto the ground. I think I'll join you. Have a good evening, Alu said with a wave. When they were gone, he spoke quietly in elder speech. We should have killed him. What does he know? I doubt he knows much, just nursing a grudge. But he may put Kalmak on alert. That was precisely what Ethermel feared. An attack on Kalmak would be hard enough. He didn't need Carmignola mucking things up. Didn't that doctor know the meaning of the word gratitude? Ethramel saved his life after his throat was slashed, and vouched for his life to the Scoyatel. If that plowing dwan gets me killed, he thought. Alu yawned. So now what? We ride back to Blagren. I need to talk to Shenny. 17. Sevo wondered what he was doing. It was not the first time he thought this. I'm waiting for Tabek, he told himself in a stolid voice a voice that never once doubted itself or its mission. We travel to the outskirts of the forest, where Tabek stripped and skin-shifted into an eagle and took off. And Zeva remained at the edge of the forest, holding Tabek's clothes, wondering how much longer he must wait. He wondered this because he didn't want to think about Tabek's transformation. The Witcher had tried to look away, but found he could not, so he saw Tabek contort into unnatural poses before shrinking in size. He saw Tabek's nose turn into a beak, and his hair turned into feathers. He saw his arms flatten and elongate, and his feet grow sharp talons. This was all but the work of moments, and if Zevo blinked, he would have missed it. But Zevo did not blink. He's not a sorcerer, the Witcher reminded himself, though it was getting harder and harder to convince himself of that. If he was a sorcerer, he would have tried to capture me and open up my guts. There was plenty of daylight, but Zevo had waited an hour and was growing impatient. He wondered what took the damned Nilfgaardian so long. He saw a few birds in the sky, 
and wondered if one of them was Tabek. And then, before Zevo even realized it, an eagle landed on the ground. It looked like the real thing, and if Zevo's medallion didn't twitch against his chest, he would have thought it was an ordinary red-feathered eagle. But Zevo knew better, which was why he looked away and closed his eye this time. I think I have something, he heard Tabek say. Zevo opened his eye and turned to see the Nilfgaardian standing there, naked as the day he was born. A thin sheen of sweat covered his body, and he was panting. But otherwise, he looked like Tabek. Zevo grunted and threw his clothes at him. Tabek dressed quickly and told Zevo what he saw. The man in his vision had headed south, and the only thing south for a long way was a solitary log cabin, and there was currently gray smoke rising from its chimney. Did you get a look at who's inside? Zevo asked. Tabek shook his head. Would have been too difficult without alerting him. Best to go there on foot. It's not far. It wasn't far. No more than a few hours' hike. Tabek led the way, and assured the Witcher it was the most direct path. Zevo chose to trust Tabek. There were few in Dregaholes, at least, and the ones they saw looked filled in. They saw the smoke before they saw the log cabin. Then they heard music. Zevo and Tabek paused, looking at each other. The music sounded ordinary, although his medallion was vibrating steadily. They approached the cabin cautiously. The blinds were drawn on the two front-facing windows. Zevo shrugged at Tabek and knocked. The music stopped, and they heard a gruff voice from the other side. Who is it? Witcher. Zevo picked at his humming medallion. Hear about the Indrega. Shuffling from the other end, but the man sounded calm. Then why are you bothering me? Kalmek told me to visit you. Zevo recalled a name one of the guards told him, and he took a calculated risk. Your Grenholm, yes? A pause. More shuffling. Yes? Why would they tell you to talk to me? It's not my job to question when they're paying. Can I come in and talk to you about the infestation? Who's the other one with you? Zevo glanced at Tabek, who shrugged. Great help, Zevo thought with a sigh. He hated lying, mostly because he wasn't very good at it. He said, he's a forest dweller, new to these parts. He offered to help me out. Can we come in? No. Shuffling. I don't think you can. Now please leave my property. I want to be left alone. Plow it. This wasn't getting anywhere. Zevo scrapped the idea and asked flatly, Do you know anything about the disappearance of two dwarven children? The shuffling stopped, and the music started again. The witcher's head felt fuzzy, as if Grinholm was playing the world's most effective lullaby. Zevo's barehead medallion spiked against his chest so hard, the witcher yelped. This saved him, as he rallied his wits long enough to make the sign of Ard and blow the door down. The music abruptly stopped, and things happened very quickly. First, Tabek rushed behind Zevo and started stripping. Preparing to skin shift, Zevo thought, grateful he had a reason not to look at him this time. He drew his steel sword and rushed into the cabin. Grinholm stood by the bed, a viola in one hand and an axe in the other. Zevo rushed the huntsman and slashed his hand. Grinholm roared and dropped the axe. He drew his bleeding hand towards the viola, but Zevo swung his sword at the huntsman's head. Grinholm's reflexes served him well. He yanked his head back to avoid the blade but not the hilt of the sword that smashed his jaw, dislodging it to an unnatural angle. Grinholm roared and took a step back, raising his viola up. Zevo thought Grinholm would play a few notes, and he had time to do it, but instead he threw the viola on the ground and stomped on it. The viola shattered into a dozen bits, and Zevo's medallion ceased vibrating. Grinholm held his arms up, and Zevo aimed the point of his sword at his throat. Why, was all Zevo could think to ask. Grinholm's face was starting to swell, and his jaw took on a deep shade of purple. He spat out blood and the shattered remains of a tooth. Kalmak owed me money for the Indrega I killed, he said simply, 
though his words were slurred and appeared painful to form. They didn't pay what they promised. This seemed a fitting punishment. So you take it out on a dwarven couple that had nothing to do with it? No. The dwarven kids were just a test, to see if the music worked. I was going to wait for the solstice, when everyone was drunk and asleep, and snare as many kids as I could. Grenholm laughed, which turned into a racking cough. Blood flew onto the floor with each exhalation. Funny thing is, there really was a witch in the woods. Got the better of her, and she gave me the viola in exchange for her life. Shedder's magic worked best during the solstice. Guess it doesn't matter now. No, Zevo agreed. It doesn't matter now. He knocked Grenholm out with a single punch, and caught the huntsman as he fell. He slung him over his shoulder with a grunt, and spun around when he heard a meow. An orange tabby cat crept out from under the table. It reminded Zevo of his own cat, Bandit, who died over sixty years ago. Hey there, he said, hunkering down and holding out his diminished left hand. The tabby hissed and jumped away. That was typical. Cats didn't like witchers, or anything magical for that matter. Scholars and peasants alike knew it was because cats could physically see the magic in the world, and rightfully distrusted it. Tobek stood in the doorway, putting his shirt back on. Ready to go? Zevo asked. Tobek approached the tabby and said, I want to speak with the cat first. Don't take too long, Zevo grunted. He waited for Tobek outside of the cabin, watching the sky darken. He wanted to get the huntsman back to Kalmek as soon as he could. The town can deliver its own justice after that. Zevo had done his part. Tobek didn't take long. When he emerged, the witcher said, Did the cat have anything interesting to say? His name's Otto, Tobek said with a shrug. Other than that, no. 18. Lord Heyman sat in his study, the candlelight giving his face a grim visage. He leaned back in his chair and sighed. Rammert gave his report. I'm afraid you'll have to do better if you want to convince me there's Scoyatel in the forest. Carmignola suppressed his rage, but found it difficult. Didn't this fool see the danger? Just because that squirrel said he was a fisherman didn't mean he was a fisherman. Carmignola admitted he was thrown off by Ethramel's easy lies. He didn't know what the sorcerer was planning, but he knew it wasn't good. I can do better, Carmignola said. There were only a few other nobles in the study, watching the scene. He felt their eyes pierce him, doubt him. Only one noble, a fair-skinned man in a black doublet, looked curious. Let me lead some of your men into the forest. I can show them where the Scoyatel are hiding. In truth, Carmignola didn't know where their base of operations was. He was blindfolded the entire time, and only freed after he was some distance away. But it would be simple work to find a large commando of elves. Still, no need to tell the lord that. Heyman bellowed laughter. You've got some cheek on you, I'll give you that. How many men were you hoping I'd supply you? Twenty or thirty. If you could spare them. If I can spare them, he says, Heyman said to Rammert and the nobles. Only the fair-skinned noble's eyes sparkled with interest. If I can spare them. Well, I can't spare them, doctor. The midsummer feast is two days away, and I need the guards here to keep order if the commoners get too rowdy. But I think... And even if I provided you with these men, and what you say is true, both large assumptions we'd be leading them into the belly of the beast. The Scoriatel are masters of guerrilla fighting. They are not nearly as skilled at assaulting fortified towns. That's why they're squirrels. Carmagnola tried to tamp down the anger. He felt his control slipping. This fool, this damned fool of a lord. The squirrels are planning something. And if we don't move now, it may be too late. You must act. Heyman's nostrils flared. 
You stroll into my home this morning, cure one sore throat, and think you can give me orders? Think you could tell me what to do? I don't know where you got such nerve, doctor, but it's apt to lose you your head. You've offered no proof of Scoriatel, yet expect me to give you command of my town guard to march into the Indrega-infested forest? You command me nothing. Do I make myself clear? You command me nothing. The lord rose from his chair and towered over Carmagnola. They're blinded, he thought helplessly. They can't see what's right in front of them. They'll kill us all. Have you anything else to say, doctor? Heyman reclined back into his seat. Carmagnola shook his head, but said softly, As a doctor, it's my job to find and root out infections. That's all. And you're good at it, Heyman said. The only reason I granted you this audience was because little Zassin's throat is much improved. If you wish to stay as a man of medicine, I will have a room made up for you. Thank you. I understand. Carmagnola entered his room, tucked into one corner of the manor, thinking that no one would ever truly understand the danger they were in, and that no one would listen to him and save themselves. That'll do it for this episode of Tales from the Witcher. This podcast is written and produced by Jacob Gerstel. The Witcher novels are by Andrzej Sapkowski, The Witcher games are by CD Projekt Red, and The Witcher tabletop RPG is by R. Talsorian Games. The music is by Eric Matias at soundimage.org. Be sure to leave a rating and a review, and to spread the word of this podcast far and wide. You can follow the podcast at TalesWitcherPod on X, or at TalesFromTheWitcher.Buzzsprout.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you again next week.